as we study God's word together. Let's pray. Lord Father, we know you and love you, for you loved us in Christ, who offered himself, his body and his blood, given for us. Father, as we come to today's passage, may you help us to hear your word, and so be moved by you, that we will seek to live in joyful thanks every day. For we ask in his name. Amen. Well, have you ever felt the urge um, to jump over a baby? Well, if you ever do, then head off to Spain for the annual baby jumping festival, where men dress up as uh, the devil and jump over babies lined up on the streets. It's been celebrated annually for about 400 years and has become a cultural festival to ward off evil spirits. Or maybe jumping over babies isn't your thing. Maybe wrestling's a bit more your thing. Well, if that's you, then maybe you want to head to the UK and compete in the Sea World Toe Wrestling Championship. It's like an arm wrestle, but instead of your arms, you use your toes. Uh, the festival is so big that people from all over the world come together uh, to compete uh, in Ashbourne to battle for the title. There are festivals of every shape and size, aren't there, celebrated around the world, but not all of them are so random as these. A lot of them are significant and important, like the 4th of July, as Americans celebrate Independence Day, or the 26th of January, when Australians celebrate Invasion Day, or sorry, I mean Australia Day. And then there are some festivals uh, where food is an essential part of the celebrations, like Turkey at Thanksgiving, or fish and noodles at Chinese New Year. We celebrate festivals for all sorts of reasons, some for fun and some to express our national and cultural identity. And the Passover was no different to the Jews. Uh, Jews celebrated the Passover every year, uh, and many Jews still celebrate it today. But it isn't a celebration uh, just to, uh, to, to bring in a new year or just to remember the founding of their nation. It was far more significant. It all began when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. For hundreds of years, Israel lived under the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh. They had to collect clay and straw to make bricks. They had to build buildings and grand cities for the Egyptians. They were whipped into submission, beaten into obedience. And there were even a, a time when Pharaoh would send out his soldiers to wholesale slaughter every Jewish boy. But God heard the cry of his people and told Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh refused until God's tenth, final, mighty act of judgment. God sent an, the angel of death from house to house to take the life of the firstborn son. It was a just, albeit terrible, judgment on all of God, on all of Egypt. For no house in Egypt would be spared, whether Jew or Egyptian. But God warned his people and offered them salvation. And so they listened to God's prophet Moses and put their faith in God's provision of a substitute. And their son would be spared. You see, that night, blood was going to be spilled in every household. And it was either your son's life or the life of a lamb as a substitute. And so every Jew obeyed God's prophet and they put their faith in God's substitute. They took a lamb and slaughtered it. They sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on their doorposts and feasted on the lamb. And when the angel of death passed their house that night and saw the blood on their doorposts, death would pass over their house because of the blood of the lamb. That's why it's called Passover. 
And so that night there was blood on the walls. In every Egyptian house was a dead son. And in every Israelite home was a dead lamb. And Pharaoh eventually let God's people go. Ever since that day, the Israelites celebrated the Passover every year. The lamb was sacrificed in memory of the lamb that was slain for each Israelite household in Egypt. And the story of the Exodus would be recounted when their firstborn son's lives were spared, when they were freed from slavery, when they were set out for the promised land, when they became a nation. And at the heart of it was their faith in God's substitute lamb, that somehow the blood on the doorposts would save them. You see, the, the Exodus event, the Exodus for the Israelites, the Exodus was the great salvation event for Israel. It is to them what the gospel is to Christians in the New Testament. So unless we understand the significance of the Passover for Israel, then we won't appreciate the significance of today's passage. You see, when Jesus came to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, the Israelites found themselves in a similar situation that they had been when they were in Egypt. It might not have been as bad as it was for their ancestors in Egypt, but it was far from ideal. They were, there under, the, they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. That is, they weren't living as God's freed people, under God's appointed king in God's promised land. They were under the rule of Caesar, without an Israelite king to lead them, even though they were living in the promised land. And so they wanted a redeemer who would rescue them like Moses, a saviour who would deliver them like King David, someone powerful and mighty who would overthrow the Romans and win back their freedom. And as we saw in Mark 8, the disciples had hoped that Jesus would be that kind of leader. He certainly had the power, for at his command, even demons obeyed him. And he certainly had the support, for the crowds loved him as he fed the thousands. Ever since Mark 8, Jesus has been saying, though, that he hasn't, be, he hasn't come to be the heroic king that they want, but to be the sacrificial lamb they need. And it's something that Jesus had to repeat over and over again. He keeps telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to lay down my life as a ransom for many. And Jesus had to repeat this over and over again, not only because it was a difficult message for the disciples to hear and accept, but because he wants them to know that no one is going to take his life from him. But he's choosing to give up his life for them. And so why is this message so important? Well, as we see from today's passage, as Jesus celebrates his last supper with his disciples, his final meal before he dies, his death is the central theme. You see, the fact that Jesus celebrates his last supper, supper, the last Passover, the night before his death isn't a coincidence. It's what the Passover has always been pointing to. Throughout Israel's history, they must have been asking themselves, how does a lamb, an animal, take the place of a human being as a substitute for God's judgment? How, how is that possible? If you get a parking fine, and you want to pay in Russian rubles instead of Australian dollars, it's not going to be accepted. You'll still have your fine on you. Or you're baking a cake and you need to add some sugar, but you realise, oh, I've run out of sugar, so I'll substitute it with some salt. Well, if you do that, your cake's not going to turn out very nice, is it? 
And so if you can't substitute currency to pay a fine or ingredients to bake a cake, then how is it possible to substitute the, the judgment of God from the life of a human being to the life of a lamb? Why was it possible for God to pass over judgment on the houses of the Israelites on the basis of the blood of a lamb? Well, that's explained in today's passage. Because it's no coincidence that on the night before Jesus' death, as he celebrates the Passover with his disciples, he's betrayed by one of his disciples to death, and he establishes a new covenant with his disciples, founded upon his death. And that's what we're going to look at now. So verse 12 tells us that it's time to celebrate the Passover meal. That means Jesus would, uh, Jerusalem would be jam-packed with people as people from all over the empire come and descend to Jerusalem to celebrate it with family and friends, including Jesus and his disciples. And they make preparations, verse 16, come together in verse 17, and we're told when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. Now in case we've forgotten, Mark reminds us that Jesus is celebrating the Passover, not just with anyone, but with his twelve disciples. Now you remember that the 12 disciples were 12 men. He handpicked, he chose from the crowds. The fishermen that he chose, the tax collector that he chose, the people that he saw, he chose and he told them, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Come and be my disciples in ministry. Come and be my companions in life. Come and be my friends forever. For the last three years, they've barely left his side. They've been with him through the storm and saw Jesus calm the storm with the word. They've seen thousands go hungry and saw Jesus feed all of them with enough leftovers for takeaway. They've experienced his love and saw Jesus forgive sins. And now when Jews celebrate the Passover, they would ordinarily celebrate it with family, their family. It was a family occasion, a bit like how we might celebrate Chinese New Year or our birthdays. It's a family affair. But you notice that Jesus isn't with his earthly family. And that's because he's with his God-given family. You see, Jesus' disciples were his family. They were that close and that significant to him that he would spend his last meal on earth, his last supper with them, and no one else. And so when we read the words in verse 18, you can just imagine how difficult it would have been for Jesus to say these words. You can just imagine the tear rolling down his eyes as he says these words. You can just imagine his lips quivering as he says these words in verse 18. Truly I tell you, one of you, one of you, my best friends, one of you, my disciples, one of you who I handpicked, one of you who I've spent three years doing life with, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. How, how horrible and how heartbreaking are these words. We're so used to reading it that maybe we have become immune to the agony that Jesus would have felt when he said these words. I mean, have you ever trusted someone only for them to betray you? Because Jesus has and he knows exactly how it feels. And the Passover meal should have been a, a joyous occasion, a wonderful time of celebrating what God has done for Israel and for them. But it quickly turns into a terrible and awkward dinner. Verse 19, they were sad and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. 
But Jesus says it's one of the twelve, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. But this sad affair, this betrayal of a loved one, of a best friend, is for a reason. And we're told that it is to fulfill Scripture. Verse 21, the Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. We, we, we see this in the Old Testament in, in Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now I doubt G- Judas was thinking, oh, I've got to betray Jesus because I want to fulfill scripture. That's not what he's thinking. So why did he betray Jesus? Why did he choose to do this cruel thing? to his master, to his friend. You see, the, the, the reality though is that he, he wasn't actually doing anything out of character. This was always him. You see, he had the role as treasurer of the disciples. He looked after Jesus' money. But he probably didn't do it because he was good at accounting at university. He probably did it because he loved money. Just before the Passover, Jesus, Judas had gone to the chief priest to betray Jesus for money. So in chapter 14, verse 10, a few verses before this, today's passage, we're told, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now apart from tennis, I don't really watch sports. And so I don't often have a team to barrack for when a sport is played, like when the AFL's on TV. So like when the Blues played the Bulldogs last Thursday, who should I go for? Or when Italy played North Macedonia to qualify the World Cup, who, who should I barrack for? Well, I don't know whether you do this, but sometimes what I like to do is simply to choose the winning side. So as you watch it unfold, half time, if Italy's up, then I'm going for Italy. I'm barracked for them. But in the second half, if North Macedonia is, is up by a goal, then I'm going to go for them because I want to be on the winning side. Now, in a similar way, that's probably what Judas is doing. That's probably the game he's playing. But obviously it's much, much more significant. He knew that the leaders of Israel had been plotting to kill Jesus. And it became clear to him, as Jesus kept talking about his death over and over and over again, that Jesus isn't going to be this military king that he wants. And that the leaders of Israel, if they found the opportune time, the leaders of Israel, like the chief priests, will succeed in killing Jesus. After all, they're the ones with power and authority. And Jesus is simply a homeless rabbi. They've got soldiers, but Jesus keeps teaching about turning the other cheek. They've got money and political clout, and Jesus doesn't have a place to lay his head. And so as Judas is watching this battle, between Jesus and the, and the leaders of Israel unfold, and, and, and as he is about to hear the final siren sound, as it were, he knew he had to quickly choose a side. And, and which side would benefit him most? Which side would be safest for him? Which side would give him greater security in life? Well, he, he didn't want to take the risk with Jesus. And he saw the writing on the wall, as it were. He chose the obvious side. He hedges bets against his master and betrays him for 30 silver coins. 
But as the meal continues to unfold, Jesus doesn't dwell on the, uh, on the betrayal. He moves on with the Passover meal to establish a new covenant. Now, as you can imagine, the Passover meal was strictly followed by Jews for generations. The lamb had to prepare, be prepared in a certain way. The evening had to take the, a, a certain form. The meal was divided into four parts. Maybe think of like an Italian, uh, going to an Italian restaurant with a set meal where you've got the antipasto and the primo and the secondo and then the dessert. And, and if you have the dessert, make sure you get the tiramisu because that's the best part of the meal. Now, now, the Passover meal was an interactive meal as well. So four courses, interactive. The whole family would be reclining at the table where the food was laid out and you, and you just go for it. And at, at the end of each course, children, usually the youngest boy, would, would be coached to ask questions, prescribe questions to ask the head of the house, the, fa- uh, the, the, the family head, usually the dad. So you've got the youngest boy and the dad. And he's got set questions to ask. At the end of each course, the, the, the head of the house, the presider, the dad, will take a cup of wine. The boy would ask the question, and the dad will answer the question. The boy's questions would be in relation to Exodus chapter 6, and the, and the dad's answers would be in reference to that. Why, why, why are we celebrating this? Uh, what, we were rescued from Egypt. We were freed from slavery. We've been redeemed by God. We've got a relationship with God. Four-part course, four questions, four answers. Now, the context of Jesus' Passover here is the third cup. It's the end of the third course. He takes the third cup of wine. And at this time, he blesses the bread, the herbs, and the lamb, the bitter herbs, with the words of Deuteronomy 26. He then goes on to explain the significance of each item, the bread, the herbs, and the lamb, in light of the Exodus event. For example, the presider would explain the bread by saying, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. And then Jesus takes the third cup, And his disciples are expecting Jesus to tell the ancient story, the story that they have heard over and over again, the story that they know by heart, the story that they have always been taught for as long as they can remember. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus is holding the third cup. And for the first time in the history of Israel, Jesus goes off script. He changes the story. For he tells a new story. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when they had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, he doesn't say this is the bread of our affliction. He says, take it. This is my body. That is, no longer is the bread representative of our affliction that our ancestors experienced in the wilderness. This is now the bread of my affliction. Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to suffer so that you don't have to suffer. I'm going to lead you out of the ultimate exodus and bring you the ultimate deliverance, not from slavery to the Egyptians, but slavery from sin. 
And the blood that must be spilled isn't the blood of a lamb, but it's my blood, unblemished blood, innocent blood, sinless blood, human blood. Blood that will be spilled within the next 24 hours on the cross. And so Jesus takes the cup in verse 23 and, and he gives thanks, gives it to them. They all drink from it. And then Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, verse 24, which is poured out for many. Just as the blood of the Passover lamb spared Israel from God's judgment, so now the blood of Jesus will spare many, many people from many, many nations, not just the Jews, but many nations, from all generations, from the judgment of God. You see, Jesus' death is the Passover of all Passovers, as Paul the Apostle puts it in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You see, Jesus doesn't preside at the feast. He, he, sorry, Jesus doesn't just preside at the feast. He is the feast. He is the Passover lamb who offers himself for many. And he's offering it to you and me, his body, his blood. You know, when someone gives you something, it's not yours until you take it, accept it, receive it, make it yours. And when you do, it's yours. And so the question is, have you taken it? Have you taken the bread and the blood of Christ, the body and blood of Christ? And if you haven't, will you take it? For God's judgment will come pouring down. And will either pour down on Jesus on the cross for you or on yourself. Will you let Jesus spill his blood for you so that you don't have to spill your blood for your sins? You see, Jesus is so committed to dying for you and me that if we accept it, we enter a covenant, a contract, a relationship with Jesus that has been bought with his blood. So that when God sees us, he sees us covered in the innocent blood of Jesus. And so God's judgment will pass over us so that we might live as the innocent children of God. You see, friends, with new blood comes new covenant. And with a new covenant comes a new family. Don Carson puts this really well. What binds Christians together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. And friends, that's us, isn't it? We are bound together in the love of Christ. We are his family. We are God's given family to one another. And just as Israel looked forward to the promised land, so we who take, have taken of Jesus' body and have drank of his blood and have been banded together by his grace, we can look forward to entering the kingdom of God. Verse 25, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Jesus is promising unconditional commitment to us. Jesus will take us to the feast in heaven 
when he will drink of the vine again and we will be able to enjoy it with him and each other as God's family. Last week when we studied Mark chapter 13 together, we came to see that Judaism was coming to an end. And we see that confirmed again today. With the fulfillment of Jesus as the Passover lamb, we no longer celebrate the Passover meal. Instead, we celebrate the Lord's meal, the Lord's Supper. When we come together to remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood spilt for us. You see, Judas was wrong. The leaders of Israel were wrong. And many people today still get Jesus wrong. For what we need isn't a leader who will fight our wars, but a leader who will end all wars. And that leader is Jesus. He's the leader we want because he's the only one who can offer the sacrifice we need. He's the king who establishes the kingdom of God and the only one who will welcome us into the family of God. And so, friends, as we look forward to celebrating Easter in a few weeks' time, we'll be celebrating a wonderful festival. And it's not about a bunny, but about a lamb. Just as the Israelites were saved on the basis of faith in a substitutionary sacrifice, so are Christians. But the faith we have isn't in a bunny, but in the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb. Jesus Christ. And so friends, as Easter quickly approaches, may we be filled with deep thankfulness in our hearts for Jesus and be spurred on to share the good news of the Lamb. Amen.